Today is National Bible Day, and um, last Sunday, if you will remember, I announced that we would be taking questions from the congregation about the Bible, and Tim collected these during the break today, and I'll have him bring those at this time. And Josh is going to help me with these. Uh, none of this has been planned out ahead of time, and hopefully between the two of us, we will be able to provide adequate answers. Wow, look at this big stack. This is going to take hours to work through. <laughs> Hours. <laughs> All right, so the first question comes from Sarah Schwartz, who seems skeptical. Is this really National Bible Day? I never heard of it. All right, well, probably most of us are not aware of it, but it is a thing. Its history can be traced back to over 200 years ago when our fourth president, James Madison, declared the first Sunday of 1815 as a day to honor the Bible and its teachings. Later, a few other presidents followed Madison's example in calling for the nation to set aside a day to honor the Bible. But it's been kind of hit and miss depending on the president and never really gained enough traction to become an annual observance. President Lincoln tried to revive it, and he was the first to name it National Bible Day. Presidents Truman, Truman, Eisenhower, Reagan each declared a National Bible Day, but those days were all over the place, fall in November, April, May. And today it is observed annually on the fourth Sunday of January, and it's more of an informal tradition, not anything officially declared by president, sort of like National Chocolate Day and National Puzzle Day, those sorts of things. And the way to celebrate National Bible Day, the organizers of it say, is to do what? Read the Bible. There you go. All right. And Josh, I think you have some fun facts about the Bible to start us off with today. Yeah, I sure do, Wendell, with zero preparation. I just have all these facts. So, <laughs> That's why we send you to seminary. All right, well, let's start out with some general trivia about the Bible. As many of you in here probably know, the Bible is the number one best-selling book in the world. Year-by-year year basis, estimates ranging anywhere from 25 to 100 million copies sold each year. Pretty crazy uh, disparity in that range, but still, either way, <laughs> uh, quite a few Bibles sold. Now, what I suspect fewer of you know is that the Bible also is the record holder annually for most stolen book in the world. <laughs> um, it's speculated that whether it's from hotel rooms, church pews, uh, libraries, bookstores, the Bible is quite popular to permanently borrow without permission. <laughs> now, let's talk translations. So since William Tyndall's, uh, Tyndall's English translation in 1526, it's estimated that today we have about 900 different English translations of the Bible. 900. Now, there aren't quite as many non-English translations. So according to the Wycliffe Global Alliance, as of September 2023, there were only 736 full translations of the Bible in other languages. That's not great considering that that makes up for just about 10% of the world's active languages. Now, according to the Linguistic Society of America, there are about 7,168 languages that are currently being used in the world. So, 
we have some catching up to do as far as uh, non-English translations. But it's not as bad as it sounds considering two things. First, uh, it's only about 23 languages that account for over half of the world's population. And we do have translations in those 23 languages. So that's a big win. Um, second, you'll note that I said we only have 736 full Bible translations. Uh, there are actually, um, if we look at translations of just the New Testament, just the Old Testament, uh, portions of the Psalms, portions of Scripture, we actually have closer to 3,650 different languages covered in those kinds of translations. So just under 50% of all known languages in use. So there is some silver lining, although there's always room to improve on our efforts and to support those, like the Wycliffe Bible Translators, who are devoting their time and resources uh, to creating more complete translations in other languages. So, speaking of translating and publishing, a few fun facts. In 1631, a publishing company printed uh, over a thousand copies of a Bible that had one small error in it. Anybody heard of this Bible before? Maybe. Okay. Whether or not this error was a mistake, I will leave for you to decide. But the error was this. Out of the 773,692 words in the Bible, one very important word was omitted from the seventh commandment in Exodus 20, 14. The word not in the line, thou shalt not commit adultery. Turning a very specific and important prohibition into a very specific endorsement. So, was it an accident? Hard to say. Either way, the error was not found and addressed until over a thousand copies of this Bible had already been distributed. Now today, I did some snooping, only about nine copies of this Bible still exist. Uh, it's been infamously nicknamed the Sinner's Bible. <laughs> and I confess, as I was researching this, I thought this could be great to own, just because I like to collect different translations. And uh, I found one posted on an auction for $20,000. So we'll wait. If anybody has extra cash and wants to buy it for me, let me know. The Sinner's Bible. All right, one more fun fact. Uh, the world's smallest Bible is called the Nano Bible, and it measures only 20 nanometers. I don't know what that metric is, but it can fit in the tip of a ballpoint pen. It's the world's smallest Bible, full and complete. World's largest Bible is the Wayne Bible, stands about three and a half feet tall, eight feet wide, and weighs 1,094 pounds. It's a pretty big Bible. All right, we'll wrap up in just a second here. I have a few more unprepared stats. You guys ready? <laughs> Both the shortest and the longest chapter in the Bible are found in the book of Psalms. Right, Psalm 117 is considered the shortest with only two verses, and, of course, Psalm 119 is the longest. Shortest book in the Bible? Any guesses? Second John. Longest book in the Bible? Book of Psalms. Now, there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible, 929 of which are in the Old Testament, 260 in the New. 
There are 31,102 verses total in the Bible. And any guesses as to the shortest verse in the English Bible? Jesus wept. Okay, that's John 11:35. Any guesses as to the longest verse in the Bible? This is less popular. <laughs> he might win for longest paragraph or run-on sentence, but <laughs> Esther chapter 8 verse 9, which just for your edification I'm going to read to you. Longest verse in the Bible. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. <laughs> Behold, the longest verse. <laughs> Uh, now, an interesting bit of trivia. You guys, this is free for today. You can take this away. John 11.35 is the shortest verse in the English Bible. It is not the shortest verse in the original Greek. So in the Greek, the shortest verse is actually 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16, which says in English, Rejoice always. So it's also a two-word verse in English. And if you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, Josh, those are both two-word verses, so they're tied for shortest. Well, let's get down to the really nitty-gritty here. In Greek, John 11:35, Jesus wept. It's actually expressed in three words using 16 characters. Okay, three words, 16 characters. First uh, Thessalonians 5:16, rejoice always. In the Greek, is two words. 14 characters. So which one is shorter, let me ask you. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, by two fewer characters and one fewer word. So feel free to bust that piece of trivia out next time someone asks you what the shortest verse in the Bible is. You can just start your answer with, well, which Bible, English or Greek? <laughs> and that'll make you real popular at the party. All right? Wendell, go ahead. Thank you for that life-changing information. <laughs> You're welcome. Now let's move on to something more practical. This question comes from Denny. I don't especially like reading, and the Bible is way too big. Like Josh said, over 31,000 verses. What do you recommend for people like me and beginners? Good question. Now we're going to get practical. All right. So for starters, it's important to realize that the Bible is not an ordinary book. It reads smoothly from cover to cover. It actually is a collection of many different books written by many different authors in different languages over a 1,500-year period. It is generally recommended that beginners start with uh, one of the Gospels, probably Mark, which is easy to read and fast-paced and is also the shortest Gospel. Reading the Gospels will familiarize you with Christ's life and ministry, which is at the heart of our faith, of course. After that, read through some of the letters like Ephesians, Philippians, 1 John, and so on. These books teach us how to live our lives in a way that is honoring to God. Genesis is very important because it tells us how God created the world and how mankind fell into sin, as well as the impact that the fall had on the world. And the plan for our redemption begins right away there in Genesis. At some point, you'll want to read, through, um, read Joshua through Chronicles, as to get a good grasp of Israel's history. 
and reading the section that runs from Psalms through the Song of Solomon will help you appreciate and understand Hebrew poetry and wisdom. So, Kennedy, if you could advance that slide there. Here are some tools I believe would be helpful for every Christian. A couple handbooks, like the one from Zondervan and Riken, the Rose Book of Bible Charts, Maps, and Timeline that we give here to our, our, our youth group members when they graduate, um, and either the NIV or the ESV Study Bible or both. Um, it's good to have a Bible dictionary, like the classic one from Unger, but there are others a basic commentary to help you navigate difficult passages, and a concordance to help you look up a verse where you can't recall where it is, but you want to find it, that sort of thing. Have at least two, other, two or three other believers that you can freely approach with questions who have been in the faith for many years and are well-grounded in the Bible and in theology, and if they don't know the answer, they will know how to go about finding it. And um, three websites that I'd recommend that are very useful and are free, Bible Gateway, Bible Hub, and the Bible Project. Okay, Kennedy. All right, speaking of having a hard time reading the Bible, I think Josh has some interesting information from recent polls and surveys. Yeah, I do, Wendell. Thank you. And to anybody who is having a hard time reading Scripture, uh, I'll tell you right now, for better or for worse, you are not alone in that. According to Statista's 2021 survey, um, only about 11% of Americans... Uh, reports to read their Bible on a daily basis, 11%. Now, according to the American Bible Society, that number has dropped to 9% in 2023. Now, when it comes to reading your Bible at least once a week, that number has improved a little bit. It's about 25% of all Americans, one quarter of all Americans, claim to read the Bible once a week. 29% in a 2023 poll, uh, claimed to never have read the Bible. That, the same polls found that millennials led the charge uh, with the most likely to never have read the Bible, rivaled only by Gen Z. And Americans over the age of 70 were the most frequent readers. According to polls done by the American Bible Society as well, women are more likely to be Bible users than men. Single people are uh, least likely to use the Bible. Interestingly enough, people who are divorced or separated were the most likely. Just some random statistics there. Uh, in 2022, the American Bible Society launched a survey, and they found that roughly 26 million Americans had mostly or completely stopped reading the Bible, implying that they once had before. Unfortunately, esteem of the Bible is also dropping. According to a recent poll from Gallup in July of 2022, a record low of 20% of Americans polled now say that the Bible is the inspired word of God. So that's down 24% from the last time the question, that's down from 24% the last time the question was asked in 2017, and it's half of what it was in 1980 and 1984. So instead... Uh, a new high, a new record, if you will. 29% of Americans say that the Bible is a collection of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded by man. Now, I mentioned that poll in particular because it marks the first time in 2023, it marks the first time that significantly more Americans have viewed the Bible as not divinely inspired uh, than those who view it as the inspired word of God. So that's pretty troubling stuff. 
All right, well, we have a question from Martha Luna. It's a good question. She asks, everyone keeps referring to the Bible as God's Word. Well, how do we know that? There are so many called holy books in the world, each claiming to be a revelation from God. Wendell, you've done some sermons on this in the past. What, you want to take this one? Okay, so a common way that Christians try to answer this is to simply quote 2 Corinthians 3.16, the verse that reads, All Scripture is God-breathed, or in some translations, all Scripture is inspired. The problem is um, this response amounts to circular reasoning. To say that the Bible is the Word of God because the Bible says it is the Word of God is not going to win over a, a skeptic. It's like me saying, I'm the coolest person in the church, and because I'm the coolest person in the church, I know what being cool is, and I'm saying I'm the coolest. Okay, See the circular reasoning? So to make the case about the Bible, several points need to be established. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, God, claimed to be God, then everything he said would be true. Jesus affirmed the Old Testament as the Word of God. Regarding the New Testament, we know that he commissioned his apostles to take his teachings to the ends of the earth and to help them remember his teachings and to guide them in the truths of the kingdom that they would be proclaiming. He promised them the Holy Spirit. The 27 books in the New Testament were either written by an apostle or those writing under the authority of an apostle. And based on the promises of Jesus, we have assurance that these writings are the word of God. Now, so this is the basic argument. We need time to fill all that in, develop each of those points, but this is the case in a nutshell. Essentially, as you can see here, the case rises or falls on whether Jesus really is the Son of God. And hopefully you will remember the many times we have tackled that question in the past. But we would do well to avoid the more common approaches we often hear um, that are taken. You know, it is by faith that we believe the Bible is God's Word. That's a common one. Or the Bible doesn't need to be defended. It just needs to be believed and obeyed. You see this often on church marquees. And, of course, the Bible says it is God's Word. Again, circular reasoning. Now, the fact that the Bible claims to be God's Word is very significant. Uh, for the reader who has accepted its authority, it removes any misunderstanding about the ultimate source of Scripture, that it is from God. But that particular argument, again, isn't especially useful for the one who is still struggling with doubts. All right, ironically, and I mean, who would guess this? The next question randomly picked ties into that perfectly. Um, what is the difference between inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility? And this comes from Marcus Brown. And Josh, you and Marcus, you guys go back a long way, many, many years. Why don't you help bring some clarity to all this? Yeah, I've known Marcus at least 20 years. I wish he was in here this I wish he was in here this morning, but he's not for some reason. So that's a great question, Marcus. The three biblical eyes, inerrancy, inspiration, and infallibility. Now, a lot of times these get mixed up, especially inerrancy and infallibility. So let's see in just a few minutes if we can get some, some basic definitions for, for each, starting with the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, if we look at Paul's teaching in 2 Timothy 3.16, he, he says this, All of Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, uh, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so it's really this idea of Scripture being breathed out by God that inspiration is all about. The, the words that Paul is using here, they can be used for, for breath, but they can also be used in sort of a play on words for the Spirit. 
And so what Paul seems to be saying is all of Scripture finds its source in God. And it's His Spirit, God's Spirit, that inspired the writers of Scripture to write what they did. And so if we wanted to just sort of put that into a doctrinal statement of sorts for this morning, it might look like this. The inspiration of Scripture means that God has worked by His Holy Spirit through the instrumentality of the whole personality, life experiences, and literary talents of the human authors to produce the very words that God wanted written to reveal Himself, to reveal His purposes to His created human beings. Now, let's look at infallibility and inerrancy. And a lot of times, these are the two terms that can get jumbled up. They can be used synonymously, uh, which is fair because they are uh, closely related. And sometimes the distinction between them can be hard to explain uh, and understand. But we'll give it a shot. When we say the Bible is infallible, we're saying that it, it adequately expresses whatever God was seeking to communicate. It conveys whatever God wanted to convey, and as such, we can trust Him in His Word. And you think about it this way. The term infallible is derived from the word fail. And so when we say that Scripture is infallible, we're asserting that Scripture will not fail in communicating God's truths. Inerrancy, on the other hand, while it's similar, could be almost said to be the natural consequence of infallibility. And it's basically the idea that Scripture in its original writings does not affirm anything contrary to fact. Uh, that when we use the proper tools of interpretation, we will find that Scripture does not contain any contradictions. Uh, no contradictions with itself, with other Scriptures, no contradictions with history, no contradictions with science. Again, when we are using the proper tools in interpretation. That's the idea of inerrancy. Now, we could go uh, a lot more into this, obviously. There's a ton more to it, but I think we may uh, actually be looking at a sermon or two, possibly for next year's National Bible Day. Uh, but hopefully for our purposes this morning, Marcus, when you get a chance to watch the recording, uh, that helped to bring a little bit more clarity. Great question. Now, we do have a follow-up question from Marcus's little brother, Henry. Um, another excellent question. And Henry asks, is belief in the inerrancy of Scripture necessary for salvation? Wendell, what do you think? Okay, so anytime someone frames the question like that, it feels like it's a trap question. It could get a little tricky, a little dicey, but we believe Henry's intentions here are innocent enough. Um, so these questions, however, need to be qualified. As a starting point, we would say that the center-circled doctrines that one's salvation rests on are limited to a small list, a small list of the most important and most essential truths of the faith, the sorts of truths we find articulated in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And uh, we need to resist the temptation of adding things into that, things that don't belong, and taking things out of it that do belong. So we are talking here about truths that have stood the test of time, are well-grounded in Scripture, are universally recognized as the core beliefs of the faith by all branches of Christianity. A new believer may not understand all of them as they should, might not even be aware of all of them, but once explained, they cannot be denied. 
The inerrancy of Scripture is not one of those center-circled issues that one's eternal destiny rests on. However, like other doctrines that are in that second circle, it is a truth worth fighting for, arguing about, and defending with great passion. So if we had a member here who thought it possible that the Bible might have some errors in it about history or science, but still held to the Bible's inspiration and authority in matters of faith and doctrine, we would still recognize them as a Christian, and this would not affect their membership. However, given the significance of this doctrine and the, ram and the ramifications of it, it is our policy here that they would not be afforded the opportunity to teach either adults or children. All who teach must, must subscribe without hesitation to all 19 articles of the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy, six pages worth, that can be found on our website. All right, and now a question that is somewhat related, and this comes from Noble Platter. All of this nitpicking <laughs> about inerrancy and infallibility and so on smacks of bibliolatry. Why can't we just love each other and get along? <laughs> so, Josh, you're buddies with this guy. I mean, he's a little con too contentious for me here. So why, why don't you, take, why don't you take, take Noble's question? You know... No, well, it's, <laughs> I agree that particularly within the community of brothers and sisters in Christ, we should love each other and all get along. There should be a, a spirit of unity there. And if we're not, that could be a sign of a problem, for sure, for sure. Um, I do want to press pause, though, for just a minute and look at your concern about bibliolatry. Okay, Now, bibliolatry, as you know, is a term for idolatrous worship of the Bible, essentially elevating the Bible over God. You know, I think it's safe to say that most of us, if not all of us in here, would agree that the Bible is inspired and infallible and inerrant, uh, and that we would hold it in great esteem as the Word of God. But no one in here would truly worship the Bible. We know that God alone is to be worshipped. In the same way, well, we can read about how to be saved in the Bible and read of God's redemptive plan in Scripture. Uh, none of us would look to the Bible as our source of salvation. God alone saves. So, but Noble, here's the problem. I know you're not doing this. I hope you're not doing this. But usually, when someone brings up bibliolatry, and they're, they're accusing us of bibliolatry, it's coming from something else. Um, it's coming from maybe a low view of Scripture uh, that seeks to diminish its importance and precedence in our lives, lessen our esteem of it, in a sense, to make room for something else. And the troubling question is, Noble, <clears throat> what is that something else? I appreciate how carefully you're listening to this. <laughs> what is that something else? Well, sometimes you'll hear it said that bibliolatry is the pursuit of head knowledge over heart knowledge, whichever side of the heart's on. If we, <laughs> if we pursue too much head knowledge, well, that's becoming idolatry of Scripture. What matters most, what the implication is, what matters most, what should be prioritized is that we're feeling and expressing from the heart. And unfortunately, the implication goes on from there is that sometimes 
we should reduce our pursuit of knowledge and our understanding of Scripture so as to somehow make room for uh, what effectively amounts to a subjective and experiential revelation of quote-unquote truth that would come from outside of Scripture, uh, from a different source than Scripture, and usually a, a truth of some kind that will sort of mysteriously emerge from our relationship with Jesus. Now, not only is that view arguably dangerous, and we could spend some time on the dangers, but I think it leaves us vulnerable um, uh, to missing some crucial aspects of the Christian walk. Uh, namely, that not only is it through the work of God's Holy Spirit, but it's also through an informed mind that we experience a transformed heart. I mean, this is the message of the psalmist in Psalm 119.11. What does he say? He says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So arguably, it's in our high estimation of Scripture, God's revealed truth to us. Uh, it's through our time that we spend in that truth. It's through our trust in that truth that we're able to then grow into a deeper and more intimate relationship with the source of that truth. And it's precisely through the ways that he is revealed in Scripture that our understanding and our subsequent experience and growth in Jesus takes place. So, so with that said, Noble, let's go back to your original question. Why can't we just love each other and get, and get along? Well, maybe the issue that you're sensing here, I feel like <laughs> I'm getting hotter. <laughs> okay. Um, maybe the issue you're sensing here isn't uh, our high esteem of Scripture, but maybe it's a failure in application. So I think, for example, of, of Christ's encounters with the Pharisees in Scripture. Now, they esteemed Scripture highly, right? They knew it inside and out, but something in their lives was still missing. They, they knew God's Word, but by the fruit of their lives and conduct, it seemed they did not know God. And in that ignorance, it led them to the devastating reality of rejecting his son. Now, so if anyone was guilty of bibliolatry, it might have been them. They, again, they had the highest esteem for Scripture, but it seemed to take precedence in their lives over obedience and a changed heart. So what did Jesus say to them in all of his encounters with them? Did he ever say, hey... Hey, stop caring about Scripture so much and focus more on what your heart tells you. Uh, focus more on, on subjective spiritual experiences. That'll fix you. That's not what he said. Did he ever say, hey, start, stop loving Scripture uh, so much, start loving it less, and start loving me and other people more? No. No, he always pointed them back to Scripture. He recognized the authority of Scripture in everything that he taught and said. Have you not read, he would say. It is written, he would say. To him, Scripture was clearly the trustworthy foundation for how we should live in right relationship with God and with each other. And so arguably, the missing piece for us here isn't so much about too high of an esteem for Scripture, but maybe how diligently... We're seeking to apply what it is that we have taken the time to know. How earnest we are in pursuing obedience to what Scripture says. 
maybe there, maybe then, we'll be more naturally inclined to exhibit the love described in Scripture. I could riff on that for a while longer, Noble. Hopefully that helps give a little, little bit of an answer to your question. All right, so this, this, now we have a, a question from Deanna Stevens. Is she in here with us this morning? She's, she's teaching. All right. So the next question is, uh, my mother, Connie, keeps telling me that Hayden needs more discipline. Uh, and, that, and that Dave and I are too relaxed when it comes to whoopings. She keeps quoting, spare the rod, spoil the child. Where is that in the Bible? I want to take that. So first of all, if I, I tend to agree with your mom about Hayden. A good old-fashioned trip to the woodshed would go a long way with him. However, the saying she keeps badgering you about is not in the Bible. The principle itself, however, is captured in a couple different Proverbs, like 1324, 1918, and so on. But there are a number of common expressions like this, modern-day Proverbs, that people generally assume are from the Bible, but they are not. Things like, this too shall pass, cleanliness is next to godliness, God helps those, help themselves, it was meant to be, my mother is always saying this, um, to err is human, to forgive is divine, money is the root of all evil, it's not money is the root of all evil, but the love of money, hate the sin, love the sinner, and others like that, though some might reflect biblical principles, the sayings themselves are not actually found in scripture. And through the years, I've heard various people say God moves in mysterious ways. And I just assumed that this, too, was, you know, something that came out of Christian folklore, another one of those spiritual-sounding sentimental phrases that Christians like to propagate. But one day, while reading Isaiah, I came across those very words in 45.15. Truly, O God of Israel, our Savior, you work in mysterious ways. And I was amazed that I never saw that before, but this be was because I was that time reading it in the New Living Translation. All the other versions render it, Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. And given that the NLT attempts to render the meaning of a verse more than the actual words themselves, I found myself somewhat unconvinced that they had it right. But whatever the case, there are a lot of popular sayings floating around out there that people believe are Bible verses by, but aren't. And this is, and, and the way to know, of course, is to know your Bible, thus National Bible Day. All right, so here's a good question, and this one's well-suited for Josh, and it comes from Lori Nelson. Where is the Bible illegal in the world? Illegal to own, publish, distribute, that sort of thing. Yeah, good question, Lori. Thank you. Um, there are actually, surprisingly, uh, fairly few instances where the Bible is truly illegal. Uh, I would think maybe of North Korea, possibly Afghanistan, as two cases where it might just be straight up illegal to have a Bible. But most of the time, the real limitation of freedoms has to do with how you use the Bible. Um, so in Saudi Arabia, for example, it's fine to bring a Bible into the country. You can have it on your person. Um, but if you're doing something like reading it in public... Uh, if you're suspected of using the Bible to, to proselytize, to share your faith, uh, to speak publicly about your faith, that'll for sure get your Bible confiscated 
and you could end up in prison. But again, the Bible itself is not necessarily illegal. Now, in some countries, the illegality of a Bible can come down to your background, too. So if you, uh, for example, are in the Middle East and you're part of a historically cultural, uh, culturally historical Christian community, uh, or you're a foreign Christian, you can gather, you can use your Bibles, you can worship together by and large. But say you're in, again, a predominantly Muslim country, and you convert from Islam to Christianity, um, then as a Muslim background believer, if you were to be caught gathering, if you were to be caught with a Bible in your possession, that Bible could mean your imprisonment, torture, and even death, depending on which country you're in. So in Iran, uh, here's an example, a believer from the Christian ethnic group there, the Assyrian church, they could have a Bible in the Assyrian language uh, for them to use, uh, for home use. But if a Christian who converted from Islam is found to have a Bible in Persian or Farsi, the national language, imprisonment, torture, or death. And this is true, again, in many areas of the Muslim world. So as a basic answer uh, to that question, even in countries where a Bible is technically legal, which is most countries, uh, it can still be taken away from Christians at any time. Uh, it can still be used as um, uh, kind of a... Uh, it can be used as fodder for false accusations. It can be used as uh, incentive for imprisonment, and so on and so forth. So there's quite a bit of danger to having a Bible in many parts of the world. Uh, certainly, however, outside of the... Um, I would say outside of the majority West, Western world, there isn't much publishing or distribution of the Bible going around, which can mean it's quite difficult, legal or not, to buy, to read, or to share God's Word. Wendell? Okay, <clears throat> and this question was actually, we just got it this morning. Uh, it was emailed in to us from D.A. Carson, who wants to know, why isn't the Bible arranged in chronological order? He's been puzzled by this for a long time, and he, he, he knew we were going to be doing this today, and so he sent that to us, hoping we would address it. So let's all say hi to D.A. Carson, who's watching online for this answer. And I'm going to turn it over to you, because you're the one that's been to seminary, going to seminary. You should know the answer to this. So. I certainly never thought I'd see the day when I would be helping Carson figure something out. Yet here we are. Um, so, what's his first name? Don. Don. Don, if I can call you that. Overall, it can be said that the arrangement we have actually does try to maintain a chronological order. Again, emphasis on the overall. If you think about it, Genesis is the account of the beginning. Revelation tells us what to expect in the end. And then in between those bookends, there's more or less a chronological sequence. But within this overall chronology, uh, books are oftentimes grouped together by their literary genre, right? by their literature type, historical, poetic, prophetic, and so on. And then within those categories, those genre categories, uh, usually, not always, we do find some semblance of chronological order. Now, there are some translations out there if you're interested that uh, do actually consider themselves chronologically ordered translations. And those can certainly be interesting to read. But most traditional translations stay with the traditional ordering, not just for the sake of genre, but uh, also for the sake 
of maintaining certain themes, scriptural themes, if you will. You see, if we were to woodenly arrange the Bible's content in chronological order, some books would actually have to, to, to be split up and they'd have to be inserted into other books. Uh, and that might be helpful for getting like a really big detailed picture of a certain historical event all at once, but in most instances, uh, it can actually lead to some confusion in the message, the messaging of the particular book and what it might have been trying to impart to its readers. So for example, we could look at First and Second Chronicles. Now, a strictly chronological translation would have to take First and Second Chronicles and split them up and parcel them into First and Second Samuel and into First and Second Kings to make the timelines all work up. And if we did that, those books would become all enmeshed, and in so doing, I think we'd lose the overarching theme of First and Second Chronicles. And the theme there was probably specifically meant to, to encourage uh, the exiles who are returning to Jerusalem to remind them of their spiritual heritage, of their priesthood, the nature of the temple, and so on and so forth. And that would all be lost if First and Second Chronicles was broken up and fragmented into these other books. So again, I think themes are a big part of why the Bible is structured the way it is in our traditional uh, translations. That's pretty much why we have the layout we have. Uh, great question, Don. Uh, here's another question from one of our skeptics who prefers to remain anonymous, understandably so, based on this question. You ready? Yeah. All right. It is obvious the Bible is a book full of myths. I can appreciate its moral teachings, but let's be real. It's an ancient book that reflects a primitive worldview of the supernatural. I think I'm going to let you handle this one, Wendell. Okay, so the first question here is, of course, what do you mean by myth? Uh, people generally equate myth with fiction, but the word myth has a variety of meanings, doesn't necessarily mean that something is not true. But I get the gist of the complaint here, the notion that the Bible is essentially filled with fantasies and legends and reflects an obsolete an obsolete pre-scientific view of the world where things are explained by angels and demons and gods and the supernatural. For instance, you know, we all know that lightning is an electric discharge of static energy and not the demonstration of wrath from some divine being sitting on top of the thunderclouds. And so many of our contemporary, contemporaries are telling us to, you know, get with the times. An adequate response would take more time than what we can give it this morning, but here, at least in my mind, would be a starting point. Some might approach this differently, but I would say that some questions just need to be asked. Where exactly are these myths? Is everything a myth or just some things? For instance, the Bible refers to the city of Jerusalem. Is that a myth? Uh, the Bible refers to the Roman emperor Tiberius Caesar. Was he a myth? It tells us the story of the Hebrews being exiled to Babylon. Did that happen, or is that a myth? Um, there are all sorts of people, places, and events that we know about from secular history that are also referenced in the Bible. You know, like instead of once upon a time in a land far away, we have in the time of King Herod of Judea. Events are anchored in space and time. Things can be checked out. And so again, what is, you know, what is a myth and what isn't? So if you keep pressing these sorts of questions, um, you will probably end up with the person saying something like, well, all that other stuff might be true, but not all these stories about miracles. And that's where you need to get the, the, the conversation at. And this is, 
this is what we need him to admit, that he comes to the table with a particular bias. Why is miracles the test? Why is, it, why is this the criteria to use to determine whether something is fictional or, or true? At this point, the discussion is no longer about whether the Bible is factual and reliable. It is now a philosophical question about whether naturalism, rejection of anything supernatural, can adequately explain the universe we live in, of whether miracles are possible or not. And we'll, that's a whole discussion. We'll have to save it for National Refute Naturalism Day, mm -hmm. which is coming up soon. Um, but this, would I, but this I, I would offer you as the approach to consider when we hear this sort of objection. Great. Thanks, Wendell. Uh, so we have another question from uh, Winter Pulver. Thank you, Winter. Is it possible that more books could be added to the Bible? Why, for instance, must one insist that there only be 27 books in the New Testament? It's a great question, valid question. So, Winter, the, the first 27 New Testament, the, first of all, the 27 <laughs> New Testament books, along <laughs> with the books of the Old Testament, are part of what we would call biblical canon. Uh, the word canon comes from the rule of law that was used to determine if a book measured up to a standard. If the book didn't measure up to that standard, it was not to be included in the Bible that we have today. So, what was the standard? Uh, as it was developed by church councils, it ended up being pretty simple. For a book to be included in the canon of Scripture, it had to be, number one, used in the churches at that point fairly universally. It had to be a well-recognized and trusted piece of writing. Number two, it had to be considered orthodox. It had to be essentially right teaching that was not obviously contradictory to any other scripture. And number three, quite importantly, it had to be traceable uh, to a trusted apostolic source, to the apostles. And these criteria were used to test the various writings available uh, to the churches in a fairly lengthy and careful process until finally the 27 books that we have today were accepted and established, and the canon was closed. Uh, so based on all that process uh, and all that necessary criteria, you can see that it would be pretty hard, if not impossible, to add any additional books to what we have now. But there's one other reason uh, why I think we shouldn't expect to see any other books. And that's that it, it doesn't seem that God would present further revelation to add to his word. As we've already mentioned, the Bible begins with the very beginning of humanity in Genesis, and it ends with the end of humanity, as we know it, in Revelation. And everything in between is to benefit us as believers. It's all given to inform us of God's nature, to inform us of his redemptive plan, uh, to give us the truth that we need for daily living. Uh, and as part of our belief in Scripture's infallibility, we can trust that God has revealed everything to us that He's wanted to reveal. And that through the books we have now, He has shown us everything that we need to know to live a life of obedience to Him. So if, if somehow further books did manage to fulfill the criteria for canon, and they were added to the Bible at some point, well, that would equate to saying that the Bible we have now uh, is somehow incomplete, uh, that it doesn't tell us everything that we need to know right now. 
uh, I think that would lead to some pretty troubling implications. Wendell? Okay, <clears throat> here's an interesting question from William Elkington. <laughs> Though it sounds a bit technical, um, does it need to be? I sometimes come across something called higher criticism and lower criticism. What is all that about? Well, this is pretty simple. Um, higher criticism refers to the efforts of Bible scholars and experts, those in academia, highly educated with doctorate degrees and such, when they criticize the Bible for what they believe to be errors and flaws. Lower criticism is when the undereducated and laypersons attempt to do this. You got the next question? <laughs> Don, you still watching? I'm sorry, when, this is a little awkward, but where'd you come up with that? Well, what do you mean, where did I come up with it? What well, do you, what do you let's, let's take a step back. Let's take a step back. I'm in seminary, okay? <laughs> you know what? I am, I am twice your age, twice as knowledgeable, twice as wise, and I've been reading the Bible since you've been scooting around on the carpet, <laughs> drooling over yourself, wearing diapers. When, all right, Wendell. So don't question what I just said, all right? This is, get, this is getting personal. First of all, I have a Dropbox folder filled with papers, and I just wrote a paper on higher criticism. So hear me out, all right? It is not just about people, educated or otherwise, being... Nah, no, hang nah, on, Tim, soon. hang on. Stop, stop, stop. No, hey, we're not done. You're too soon, you're too soon. No, we're... Down. <laughs> you hold that thought, Tim. Higher criticism is a discipline and a science, straight up. It's a completely legitimate process of analyzing the deeper spiritual meanings found in a given passage. All right, when we engage in higher criticism, we're trying to decipher the symbolism and the allegorical meaning of a text. It's all about looking for that higher meaning, the meaning that God really intended for us to find and understand. Lower criticism, on the other hand, is just about trying to understand the plain sense, the plain meaning intended by the human author. Is this what they're teaching you in seminary? On the contrary, Wendell, I learned this not just in seminary, but during my three years under Denny. Day in and day out, he would pound it, pound it in my head. If the plain sense makes good sense, you're doing it wrong. Look for a different sense. I know my criticism science. All right. I am seriously having second thoughts about your role here. non-scripted cell phone. <laughs> this is my cue. The word criticism sounds like some scheme to criticize the Bible, but the word is actually used here in the sense of investigation or examination. Lower criticism, often called textual criticism, is that of examining the text itself to see if it faithfully represents the original. Since we no longer have the originals or the autographs, we have to reconstruct from the thousands of ancient copies that we do have. And this process calls for a lot of careful scrutiny, which is good. Higher criticism, on the other hand, deals not with the integrity of the text, but with its genuineness. Questions are asked like, when is it really written? Or who really wrote it? Or where did they get their information? Or what sources did they use? And so on. 
In the past, some felt a bit threatened by higher criticism because skeptics have tried to use such criticisms and questions to discredit the Bible. Admittedly, the agenda behind it is not necessarily a friendly one. However, most evangelical scholars today have accepted it as a legitimate approach and are willing to face the challenges from such skeptics, kind of a bring it on attitude. We take great comfort in the fact that the Bible has survived and continues to survive even when subjected to the highest levels of examination and scrutiny. I hope that helps things. Thank you, Tim. I mean, I want you guys to shake hands. No, well, no, this, this is what I was saying all the whole time. That's exactly what I was saying, wasn't it? Was that not what I was saying? Well, I'm not done with seminary yet, so we'll hopefully we'll come out of it better. All right. Well, you know, it's 11.30, and after that, I'm not in the mood to keep going anymore. So. Up to you. Let's do, um, let's finish it out. Well, you guys, right. you guys are willing? All right. Okay. So you're next. Yeah, we've got a question from Isaiah Mossberg. Isaiah, good morning. All right, I hear people talk about the Old Testament being written in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek, but are these two the only original languages of the Bible? Good question, Isaiah. So almost the entire Old Testament was written in Hebrew, uh, but there are a few chapters in the prophecies of Ezra and Daniel, and uh, one verse actually in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 11, that are written in Aramaic, which would be the third language party here. So Aramaic was a pretty popular Semitic language. It's actually a Syrian dialect uh, that ended up being so popular it replaced Hebrew almost altogether among the Jewish people until it eventually gave way to Arabic. And so it was the common language spoken in Israel in Jesus' time. And it's actually likely the language that Jesus uh, himself spoke in his day to day. And what's interesting, as you read through the Gospels, you'll actually see Aramaic words transliterated into Greek sprinkled here and there. Now, I say transliterated because, as Isaiah already pointed out for us, the New Testament was written in Greek. And this might seem strange since you think it would either be Hebrew or Aramaic, but Greek was the language of scholarship and trade during the time that the New Testament was being written. Uh, and so it's likely it would have been the most natural choice for a message that needed to be spread far and wide. And so the Greek the New Testament writers used was called Koine Greek. And Koine is simply the Greek word for common. Now, not only was the Koine Greek common in the sense that it enjoyed widespread usage throughout the Roman Empire, but it was also common in the sense that it was not the language of the intellectual and the academic elites. They used classical Greek. Koine uh, Greek was the language of the working man, of the, the peasant, the, the vendor, and the housewife, and so on. There was nothing pretentious about it. But what I like about that is, as God has shown with other humble things, this language was used to great effect. Um, so along the same line is the question from Kay Otis. Is Kay here today? Uh, she's home. Okay. Well, Kay asks, what was the, what was the Bible the writers of the New Testament used? It's a great question, uh, and it's in line with just what we were talking about with Isaiah, but there's ample evidence that the New Testament writers, they used a, a collection 
of varied Greek translations of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint, which is uh, from the Latin word for 70. And it's sometimes just referred to in abbreviated form by Roman numerals LXX, or just 70. Now, the reason it's believed this translation came about uh, is that Israel was under the authority of Greece for several centuries. The Greek language became more and more common and established. And by the second and first centuries BC, most people in Israel spoke Greek as their primary language. Uh, so religious leaders, uh, seeing Hebrew kind of slipping away from the common vernacular, they, want, they made efforts to translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek in the hopes that the many Jews who did not speak Hebrew at that point could have scriptures in a language that they could understand. And so in a sense, the Septuagint actually represents one of the first, if not the first, uh, major effort at translating a significant religious text from one language into another. So the tradition is that 72 Jewish scholars, that's six scholars from every tribe of Israel, were the translators behind the Septuagint. Uh, this is actually where the name Septuagint, or 70, comes from. Now, it's debated as to why they named it 70 instead of 72, uh, if the tradition of 72 scholars uh, creating this translation is correct. And it's not actually 100% for sure why it was named 70, but I've seen a few compelling arguments. One of them is that they just rounded down for the sake of a cooler, simpler name. It's possible. Another one is that they were actually only 70 scholars who worked on the translation and not 72. Or the, the, the option that I kind of like is that rabbinic writing, uh, wanting to allude to the spiritual significance of the translation, they took liberties to connect the work of the 72 scholars with the 70 elders who went up to Mount Sinai with Moses in Exodus 24, and the 70 elders who uh, received a share of the Spirit with Moses in Numbers 11, verses 10 through 25. So there's some sort of significance in Hebrew Scripture for the number of 70, and so I think there's a good chance that the rabbis at the time wanted to impart that same sense of spiritual significance to the Septuagint, and so just kind of ignored the fact that there were 72 scholars and decided to name it the 70. So all this to say, in answer to Kay's question, evidence points to the Septuagint as being the primary source of Scripture for the New Testament writers. And we'll leave it there since Wendell is actually planning on giving a sermon on this in just a little while. Wendell? I was. What you said. I don't remember. Okay. Uh -huh. That's usually what I say when we don't want to keep talking about something. We'll do this some other time. <laughs> right. All right. Final question for the day, and this comes from Lynn Wegman. I've always dreamed of joining the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, <laughs> but I know that they have books in their Old Testament that Protestants don't have, and I've heard people talk about how they have a different view of the Bible's authority. So before I make this radical change, which I'm close to doing, I'd like to know more all about this. All right, so yes, they do include books that are not found in most Protestant Bibles. Uh, these can be found at the end of the Old Testament. I think most of us are aware of this. There are arguments for them and arguments against them, and they are called the books of the Apocrypha. There are 15 of them, and we actually do a plan to address that at some point, but not today. Um, 
<laughs> Another difference, by far the main difference, pertains to the issue of authority. And this is one of the issues, of course, of the Reformation, uh, sola scriptura, scriptura. Uh, scripture alone, meaning scripture as the final authority, the highest authority when it comes to matters of God revealing his will to us, um, is the Bible. The Bible is over the church. The Catholics, on the other hand, view the Bible as something that belongs to their tradition, their church tradition, and thus is under the church. And that, and that church tradition, of course, includes their interpretations of the scriptures. And so in the end, the scriptures have the same weight as one of many church councils or whenever the pope makes an official declaration from his throne and that sort of thing. And so, again, this is a big difference. And some of this has to do with the canon itself. Uh, the, the argument kind of unfolds this way. The Catholics claim that it was the church that determined which books belonged to the Bible. And um, Protestants appreciate the role the church had in the canon, but none of these books needed their approval. Their right to belong is self-evident. It is like saying that the church approved of Christ's divinity at the Council of Nicaea. It's not the case. Um, no, they simply recognize, formally recognize, that which is true. And that would be true of the canon as well. All right, so um, <clears throat> that's all we have time for this morning. We might do something like this again next Sunday. Next Sunday is National Dump Your Significant Jerk Day. Um, I'm not sure how much traction we'll get with that for this sort of thing. What? That was bad. <clears throat> yeah. Um, it's a weird way of showing it, but... All right. So as we dismiss, let me encourage you to honor National Bible Day by taking some time today to read your Bible, all right? You are dismissed. Go in Christ's name. Enjoy each other and serve each other in love.